c'est vrai. Je suis un ananas. Now, in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton... I'm not a Tourette, don't speak on both sides. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict. French and Fabulous. I'm Jessica. And I'm Janelle. And I hope you're all ready to be completely dead inside, like I am. It was, after researching this episode, it was either record the podcast or just stare at a wall. So, without further ado, because there's no preamble that we can give to cushion this, and this is going to be a really long episode. Nothing um, would justify it. <laughs> yeah, nothing. There's there's no intro we could do that wouldn't be jarring. <laughs> yeah, we could, we'd love to give you two minutes of banter about Bianca the ch- brain-damaged chihuahua, but that's not enough. <laughs> no, my whole bedroom smells like her farts as I record this, and even that's not doing anything to change my mood in either direction. It's like jumping into glacial water. At some point, it's gonna hit nutsack hat height, and you might as well just jump in. <laughs> we're going we're going full nutsack level. Oh boy. So I was thinking to myself, what's a good topic for a comedy podcast? And Ooh, then the shadow monsters that live inside my brain were like the Montreal Massacre, of course. <laughs> of uh, course. Naturally. So we're doing that. Um <laughs> And if you're a Canadian, you've just clenched. You have fully clenched. <laughs> yeah, all the Canadians who listen to this podcast now have, like, a clenched sphincter, sphincter <laughs> because they think that, like, the two of us are about to finally get ourselves cancelled by the true crime <laughs> community for, for finally covering a topic that's too heinous to be comedy material. And all of the non-Canadians in our audience are just like, what? They're, they're like, okay, this, this is a lot of preamble. What are you guys going to do to us? But yeah, if you are clenched so hard you could make coal into diamonds with your ass cheeks, you're probably a Canuck. <laughs> yeah, the Americans the Americans are about to find out in a very serious way that like bad things happen in Canada. If you have somehow been a fan of this podcast throughout all of the horrific Canadian topics we've done, and you still view Canada as, like, basically a nationwide theme park. Uh, we're about to probably shatter that forever. Oh, boy. Yeah, no, it's a lot more than bagged meat and charming acts. Bagged meat. Bagged <laughs> milk. It's very late at night. Bagged meat. I don't know where that came from. It's a lot more than bagged milk. Oh, I'm hanging on to the last minutes of jokes because, uh, in all seriousness, this is an absolutely monstrous topic. If you've got some ice cream in the freezer, you might want to go get that. You might want to go get some wine and a teddy bear. Because this is uh, probably one of the darkest episodes we've ever done. And this whole podcast has basically just been missing children and war dead up until this point. <laughs> so, the fact well, that it gets it like worse. That. Yeah, no, it's it's the fact that we could that we had anywhere to go further down than we already were. Human so, history is uh, filled with deep pits. Yeah, we actually passed the 30-year anniversary of this event uh, at the beginning of the month on December 6th. So Canadian audiences are probably very familiar with this. You've probably... Were, I, don't, I no longer watch Canadian news. I don't watch any news. I'm, I'm a millennial. I don't, I don't have cable. What is that? Um, but, I don't even uh, own a television. 
Yeah, no, me neither. If it's not on my tablet, I don't need to see it ever again. I get all my news from Twitter and I am ill-informed and I live in a liberal bubble. That's fine. Um, but if you if you interact with Canadian news, you're probably quite familiar with this topic. Uh, the 30th anniversary was a pretty big deal. But again, yeah, our American audiences probably have no idea that this happened. I've been living in the United States for three years now, and when I was sharing posts about the massacre on the anniversary, my American friends had no idea what I was on about. They did not know that Canada had gun violence in kind of the way that you talk about, like, oh, I didn't know that Canada had, like, paved roads. You know, it's, <laughs> it's both adorable and insulting that you feel that way. So, um... I also want to note that although we're trying to make this into a comedy podcast, we are in no way trying to make light of this event or the victims. Um, we're going to try to present some really difficult information in a palatable way that lets you learn about this event without wanting to lie face down on the highway. Um, yeah, this is this is just a softening technique to keep you from lying on the floor of your bathroom and and asking why. Like this is not because we think that dead people are funny. <laughs> they are, but that's not the point. Yeah, no, this is just a coping strategy so I can get through this topic without sleeping in the oven tonight. Um, <laughs> but, uh, we are going to be relentlessly making fun of the shooter because Mark LePin was a neckbearded little fuckwit. And if what you a live in the Montreal area, I wholeheartedly encourage you to piss on his grave. His so, grave is a gender-neutral bathroom. It's fun for the whole family. His grave is, in fact, a gender-neutral bathroom. It's, uh, the most empowering thing you can do as a woman is piss on Mark LePin's grave. I will happily, you can quote me on that <laughs> as much as you want. I stand by it. Um, so, before we actually dive into the events of the deadliest school shooting feminist. in Canadian history... Hmm? It's almost feminist. It is feminist. Pissing on Mark LePin's grave, or likeness, you know? I I'm, I'm not fussy. If you can't afford the plane ride, times are tough. You, know, print you can out a print photo. off a picture of him and yeah. piss on that. That's <laughs> that's acceptable. It's an empowering feminist act, and I encourage you to do it. You know, do what you got to do. You, you'll you'll understand why if you've never heard the term, uh, the word Mark LePain before. Um, you'll understand. You're about to understand. You're about to hate him. So before we actually dive into the events of the deadliest school shooting in Canadian history. We are going to dive into the background of the pudding brain shit weasel who committed the massacre itself. But the man who made Canadian headlines as Marc Lepin was actually born Gamil Rodrigue Lias Garbi on October 26, 1984 in Montreal, Canada. And from day one, Lepin had not only- we're gonna call him Marc Lepin, that was his legal name at the time of death, uh, Gamil Garbi was a child who didn't murder people, Marc Lepin was an adult who uh, chose what he became, so he's- that's- we're gonna do that. So, uh, from day one, LePaint had an unusual and highly unstable childhood, even by mass murderer standards. LePaint's father, Rashid Lias Garbi, was an Algerian immigrant and non-practicing Muslim who worked as a mutual fund salesman. In contrast, his mother, Monique LePaint, was a former Catholic nun who had rejected organized religion in order to leave the convent to become a nurse and marry his father. The relationship was not a happy one. We'll, we'll get into this later, but uh, Monique Le Pen basically left the oppression of a of a cloistered convent to go into an abusive relationship. So, you know, uh, it's a tough situation. Divorce Jesus to marry an asshole. Yeah, although interestingly enough, despite being the son of a former nun, um, 
Monique remained quite religious throughout her adult life, uh, although she didn't participate in former organized Roman Catholicism in the way that she had once done. Um, Mark was baptized Catholic upon his birth, but his mother revealed that he was given a secular upbringing with no religious influences. The children were sort of left to make up their own minds. And he had been an avowed atheist all of his life. So his... I mean, spoiler alert, Mark LePay hated women more than anything. His hatred of women was not grounded this is in a religious upbringing. Um, which was... Uh, we'll get into this, but a lot of stories about Mark LePay's motives circulated around Canada for, you know, 20, 30 years after the event. Many of them strange, uh, but it didn't have anything to do with religion or abortion. His his motives were were much more straightforward than that. Not Catholicism um, adjacent. Just misogynistic. No, just misogyny. Um, so when Mark was born in 1964, his father was away on business in the Caribbean, which was something that he often did as part of his job with a Swiss mutual fund company. While he was gone, Malik Lepin discovered that he had been having an affair. The two did not split up, however, and Mark's sister Nadia was born in 1967. Mark spent most of his early childhood in the Caribbean, frequently moving around Costa Rica and Puerto Rico because of his father's job. The family then returned to Montreal in 1968, where they promptly lost most of their savings and assets in a stock market downturn. Mm. Um, and if there's one thing that does not make an abusive relationship better, it's financial stress. Um, Woo! What if we were just as unhappy and just as un uncompatible, but we also had no money? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What if what if we took your anger issues and also made you broke? That <laughs> would that fix it? It didn't fix it. It did not. It did. It in no way fixed anything. So uh, Monique Lepin files for separation in 1970 uh, when Mark is six years old, and she remained in the family home with her children while Rashid Garvey moved out. And in 1971, she filed for legal separation, and the divorce was finalized in 1976. In the wake of the massacre, this divorce got dug up by the media, including Le Pen's parents' original divorce papers. All of those were made public. And it was revealed that the reason for the divorce was that Mark's father was frequently violent and abusive. Rashid Garbi was said to have unpredictable, stormy moods and would switch from being very loving to violently striking his wife and children with very little provocation. Nobody in the house was spared from his wrath, and he was said to be extraordinarily possessive and controlling of his family, ruling the household with an iron fist. Garby, perhaps unsurprisingly, uh, had a marked hatred of women and firmly believed in traditional gender roles. So he was just living in a soup of patriarchy and abuse. Just a constant stream of domestic violence. Yeah, no, he's he's getting hit while also being told to hit women. It's not... And then watching his mother get hit. No part of this is good for a child. Rashid Garbi firmly believed that it was a woman's job to basically shut up and serve men. He forced his wife to act as his personal secretary. To the point that he would stand over her while she was typing and slap her every time she made an error, making her start the document over. He would force her to keep working while their children cried for her in the background and would not allow her to stop and tend to the children until all of the documents he wanted typed were perfect. So, you know, that's just, like, level 11. I don't know. Marital reminds me of piece. my job. You know, when I'm sitting in my, <laughs> my office for the Canadian government. Just somebody slapping you while you, for some reason, have to roll back text on a manual typewriter. Uh, just openly sobbing over a shredder. 
I mean, if you're gonna watch somebody, like, type and, like, constantly berate how they're typing, maybe you should just type this. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, at some point it's like, you don't care about the typing. You just, this is just about the slapping. That's, that's really what you're about. This is just a weird psychological game. I don't, I, I don't even think you need anything written out. It 100% was a weird psychological game. Like, the fact that he made her listen to her children cry while he hit her and forced her to keep typing. Like, the whole thing was just an entirely fucked up psychological game. At no point was this actually about his belief in good typemanship. Like, no. No, 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 no. <laughs> This wasn't about her secretarial abilities. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Um, he also did not believe in showing affection to his children. He neglected them and was intentionally cold toward them, especially his son, because he believed that being affectionate with his children would make them spoiled and soft. So basically, hugging your son is gay, school of parenting. Just doing permanent damage to a six-year-old. Be a real man! Feel dead inside! No, that's exactly the, the parenting style. So the incident that prompted his mother to file for separation occurred in 1970, when Rashid grabbed then-six-year-old Mark and slammed his head into something so hard that he had marks on his face for more than a week. Ooh. So we are also throwing in blood head trauma. Yeah, not a great combination. Did he also spend a lot of time licking lead pipes? Right, you know, it's like, it's, I mean, I, I feel like they had unleaded, no, they, they definitely unleaded the gasoline in 1970, so he's he's got that going for him. Oh, but, good, because otherwise uh, this is a perfect stew of serial killer. It is a perfect stew. It is a perfect serial killer stew. I mean, to be clear, not everybody who endures head trauma and abuses a child grows up to be a mass murderer. But the instance, the instances of uh, head trauma and abuse in uh, serial killers and mass murderers are are. Uh, There's a certain it's correlation. A There's a certain connection. It's not like you get kicked with by one horse and suddenly you're thirsty for blood, but like it helps. <laughs> There is basically nothing in your life that will be improved by you experiencing blunt force head trauma. There's nothing about you as a person that will be better for having your head slammed into a wall. I mean, I once accidentally headbutted a chair and then I got a lovely piggyback ride, so, you know, speak for yourself. You bathe barefoot in public fountains. I don't- <laughs> I don't even have a comment beyond that. I had a lot of concussions growing up, and, like, I was pretty weird beforehand, but sometimes I just wonder. <laughs> oh, you don't say, Jessica. Was I supposed to be exactly like this? <laughs> no, now that you've made your brain into marmalade, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that that <laughs> did nothing but help with your, your various personality quirks. When I when I in, when I inevitably go off the deep end, that 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 time I got hit in the head with a rock when I was eight is gonna come up. <laughs> you eat a diet of five food groups, and four of them are unrefrigerated dairy. This is not. Yeah, not I part have, of this is fine. I've been eating macaroni and cheese for every meal of the day for the last week, and because my roommate's been away and I've been unmonitored, it's not been going well. <laughs> I was gonna say, who left you unsupervised? I'm gonna get your roommate one of those pet cameras that people get so they can make sure their dog's not chewing up the couch. Yeah, it'll fling treats at me. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's gonna dispense multivitamins, Jessica, so you don't die. <laughs> you can talk to me to it, through it, tell me I'm a good boy. 
<laughs> Every time you take your shoes off, it's gonna spit a cherry tomato at you. That's that's what you need. <laughs> I have like a, just a gallon of milk on the table in front of me, and it it hasn't been in the fridge in a while. So I I resent that. I resent that. That hiss you hear in the background of the podcast is not static or noise. That's Jessica's intestines screaming for help. I thought it was the giant tub of milk fermenting. <laughs> Probably that. Please put that in the fridge. <laughs> um, God. But back to back to family abuse. Um, yeah, now after we've made a brief foray into the dangers of concussions, you'll end up like Jessica or Mark <laughs> LePay. I guess those are... The two types of head injury. Those hit those you in the, the head, you'll giggle outcomes. at murder. <laughs> yeah, you're that relative who goes like, "Well, I grew up with this, and I turned out fine." And then there's just like a pregnant pause at the table. That's mm, but that's did who you? you are. But did you? <laughs> mm, no, no, no. And and Mark LePan did not turn out fine. Leaving Rashid Garby and his abuse did not bring an end to the family's hardships. Shortly after leaving the family home during the separation, Rashid stopped paying the mortgage and defaulted, and so Monique and her children lost the home and most of their possessions. Rashid also ceased paying child support after making only two payments, leaving Monique to struggle financially to raise two children by herself. Rashid initially was granted visitation with his children once per week. Somehow. Was, it was a wild time to go to family court, but uh, the children reported that they were afraid of him and disliked visiting him. Mark was reportedly so frightened of his father that once, when he learned that he was being driven to a visit with his father, he reached over and grabbed the car's steering wheel, driving the car off the road and onto the sidewalk. Mm. He's, he's seven years old. Whew. This might be a bit controversial, but I don't think seven-year-olds should be terrified of their fathers more than they are terrified of hitting a tree. No, absolutely not. If your if your seven year old is willing to die in a head on collision with a post, uh, rather than see his father, there's clearly something wrong. Jesus, take the wheel and drive me into salvation. <laughs> yeah, it's it's. <laughs> I want to cool. see the pearly gates. I know I'm eight, but fuck it. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. That's that alone should be enough to cancel visitation. But uh, as it happened, after a few initial visits, Rashid stopped seeing his children. Neither of them ever saw or heard from him again for the rest of their lives. Um, spoiler alert, both of the LePan children died of suicide in their 20s. This whole episode is dark. Really, every... I tried researching every angle of this story. Uh, all of it sucks. E everything yeah. is worse. The shooting is bad and everything that happened afterward is bad. And there's there's very little light in this tunnel. So. Yeah, if, if we mention somebody, just assume they died by violence. If, 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 a, if a puppy comes up, it's probably getting shot. Oh, it's such a- oh, yeah. No, so it's not good. But uh, as an adult, Mark LePan just flat out refused to discuss his father. So, with two children to support and no financial assistance coming in from her ex-husband, Monique LePan returned to her nursing career, while also going back to school to get her bachelor's degree and then her master's in nursing in the hope of landing a steady, well-paying job. Monique's new schedule of working and going to school full-time did not allow her enough time to raise two children, and so Mark and Nadia essentially ended up becoming tiny child vagrants, crashing with local families that Monique paid for childcare during the week and only seeing their mother on weekends. To be clear, I don't blame Monique for what her son became. Putting your child in daycare because you're trying to get a better life for your children 
does not make you a bad person. But not spending enough ch- time with your children because you're trying to feed them is a pretty sympathetic situation. And and we'll get into this. Um, Monique was, as the mothers of all mass shooters are, was sort of dragged through the mud after the massacre. But she really was trying to make the most of a bad situation. As she mentioned in an interview with McLean's magazine, daycare really did not exist in any meaningful way in the late 1960s or early 1970s. Certainly not overnight daycare during the weekday for infants. This was really not a friendly time for single mothers. Like the two parent household was just assumed. In, in, in this era where p- women are transitioning into the workforce, you don't have that kind of public accommodation of a different kind of lifestyle. No, and she doesn't have family to support her in Montreal. And she, she doesn't have contact with her in-laws. She doesn't have anybody helping her. Monique Lepin felt it would be better for her children if they could live in a two-parent surrogate house to gain some stability while she got her feet under her. And she felt guilty at not being able to provide that. No reasonable person should really draw a straight line between mom worked a lot and mass murder. Yeah, Um, like, a lot of people's moms worked a lot. My mom worked a lot. It's not... (laughs) I haven't killed anybody that you know of. (laughs) You've always got to put that little disclaimer on there. Not helping myself, am I? (laughs) No. 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 I also haven't killed anyone that you don't know of. It's it's not the murder, it's just whether I knew him. That's all that I'm worried about. <laughs> if you're, you know, if you're gonna take somebody out, at least let it be somebody that I don't care about that much. Uh, don't be so gauche as to personally affect me. We all have our separate hobbies. <laughs> That's how relationships work. Listen, as long as you have Wi-Fi in jail and can still record this episode, you kill whoever your little heart desires. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, basically Monique found the most stable two-parent families that she could who were willing to take on her children and paid them to raise her kids. It is not that far removed from daycare, just, you know, without checks or balances. So there's some questions about some of the houses that Mark and and, uh, Nadia ended up in. But when she became concerned with a family, she would move the children. So, but eventually Monique became concerned that the combination of abuse, divorce, eviction, and abandonment might have messed her children up a little bit. And so in 1976, the year that the divorce was finalized, she had both children evaluated by a psychologist, or rather, by a psychiatrist at uh, Centre Hospitalier Universitaire Saint-Justine, which is- That was almost right. Shut your mouth hole. I'm learning. It's hard. (laughs) I I, I don't know why. I went my entire life, specifically not learning French- to stick it to the ghosts of my ancestors and to punish my family for giving me an unpronounceable French name. And then as an adult, the only functional human I can trick into being in a relationship with me (laughs) is a French national. (laughs) You can't escape the French. Or the fat, or the fabulous. I cannot. Six consecutive years of eating lean cuisine have confirmed I cannot escape the fat. (laughs) 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 The fabulous is welcome to stay. But the psychiatrist who evaluated them concluded that 12-year-old Mark was withdrawn and shy, but otherwise coping well and not in need of therapy. Nadia, at the other hand, at the age of nine, was already acting out, rebelling against her mother, and therapy was recommended for her. So, one out of two ain't bad, I guess. I Uh, I guess. (laughs) The doctor was 50% correct. Um, (laughs) 
And I mean, like, that's not fair. You're just looking at these two kids he evaluated. Maybe his odds are better if you stretch it out a little bit. We say that Mark had warning signs. Everything written about Mark's childhood was written after the massacre. So people are already looking back on his childhood. With a certain color to their bedroom. Yeah. They they know what he did. They know what he became. So they're going back over his childhood looking for odd and unusual things. And there were some. As far as warning signs go, he really, he was kind of a quiet kid without a whole lot of behavioral issues. Um... At the end of Not exactly pulling the legs off of spiders and chasing the neighborhood cats. Ah, uh, well, he did kill a cat. I mean, I think oh, that's sort of like well, what it. What, if, well. if there's like a serial killer childhood bingo, I think killing the family cat is kind of the free space. Like, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's I mean, who doesn't vivisect one animal? <laughs> But other than the distinct possibility that he may have killed the family cat, pretty normal kid, you know. <laughs> it's all other things concerned. So at the end of 1976, Monique landed a job as the director of nursing at a local hospital, and the children returned to living with her full time. The following year, she was able to purchase a house for the family in a quiet, upscale suburb in the neighborhood of Pierrefonds. As Mark progressed through his teenage years, he was consistently described as shy, withdrawn, and insecure. He was frequently noted to be emotionless and uncommunicative, and he did not necessarily fit in with the other students. Despite this, his mother described him as an easy child, and he did not get into any trouble at school. He actually was considered quite gifted and received generally high grades throughout his education. She actually spoke publicly about her son's crimes for the first time in 2006, releasing a memoir called Aftermath, in which she discusses her son's childhood. He reportedly did chores without asking and assumed the role of, quote, man of the house without complaint. He was apparently quite close to his mother, who said that he was always very soft and loving with her, and that he did have a few close friends, notably one best friend throughout much of his uh, adolescent years. He excelled at computers and loved video games and war movies, which, is, you know, people look back on that with sort of like, ah, he liked war movies, but it's pretty typical teen boy stuff. Yeah, like, so um, far he just sounds weirdly reminiscent of me, so, um, not a fan. Not a fan of this particular it's, narrative. It's, it's like a branching diagram of head injuries. It's like, you know, <laughs> war movies, yes. Shoot mm. up a university in Montreal, no. Mm. That's where you branch off. But uh, That's where we get the divide. Mm. But but there was some there was some struggle too. Mark was still legally named Gamil Garbi at the time, and the other students mocked him for being an Arab. He also struggled with severe acne throughout his adolescence, something he has in common with Joseph Stalin. Oh no, wait, that was smallpox. Still bad skin. It, it makes you evil. Mm. Um, <laughs> the only way to compensate is just get a huge amount of like pristine facial hair to cover up the scars. Mm, he did actually. The only like extant picture of um, of Mark Lepin is one of him with like a a truly impressive neck beard. Mark did have a bit of an Arabic uh, an Arab appearance. Um, he was half Algerian, and he was teased for his heritage. And he was even teased by his own sister for having skin problems. Nadia was acting out. That's his little sister. She experienced major behavioral and mental health issues throughout her adolescence and she began experiencing substance abuse at a very young age. This would haunt her until her intentional cocaine overdose at the age of 28. Despite her behavioral and mental health problems, she was much more popular in school than her brother and always had a lot more friends. Mark reportedly hated her in ways that went a little bit beyond the usual sibling rivalries. 
In Monique's book, she says that adolescent Mark frequently fantasized about his sister dying and even went as far as building a grave for her in the backyard. <laughs> yeah, I I was not nice to my oh brothers my. Uh, growing up, but none of them actually dug me an open grave in the yard. Yeah. That would have been a little... My parents would have had some thoughts. <laughs> you know, the last time I had a fight with my sister, I didn't burn her in effigy. <laughs> yeah, no. We, you and I both have siblings that with strong personalities, but, uh... Oh, yeah, I yeah. was considered the quiet one. <laughs> yeah, I never just, like, casually went out to the backyard and started building them a pyre. So, you know, mm. it's... <laughs> it's a bit beyond, um... Just, like, lovingly crafting the eulogy you're gonna give them, just... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I mean, it sucks that your sibling is making fun of you for your acne, but yeah, also, when you're out in the yard, like, actively digging their grave, it's it's a bit much. He was also reportedly ecstatic when she eventually had to be institutionalized for her mental health issues and drug abuse, which is also, <laughs> okay. You're going uh, to rehab, you're going to rehab. <laughs> yeah, Monique also has reason to believe that Mark as I mentioned, may have killed the family cat. It went missing. Nadia said that Mark did it. She was never sure if Mark actually did it or if Nadia was just trying to get him in trouble. Again, it's hard to say because she's looking back on this event knowing that he went on to murder 14 people. But uh, yeah, cat disappeared under mysterious circumstances when Mark was in a bad mood. So she also noted that Mark was reportedly always a slightly strange boy. In ways that were often difficult for people to knew him who knew him to fully articulate. He was generally odd. He just sort of didn't behave like an average boy his age. People always found him kind of strange and off-putting. Just deep in the uncanny valley. Yeah, he kind of- he had sort of a constant need to prove that he was smarter than other people. He was quite insecure. And he- he liked to use vocabulary that was well beyond his age, but he sort of- didn't have an ability to do this in, like, a natural or mm. non-off-putting way. He, she just said, like, she, she said it was difficult to come up with examples of specific things, but, like, that just the way that he spoke and the way that he behaved in social situations was always just slightly off. Not even that he was creepy, just that he was awkward. More that he was, he was awkward. He would try to show off and it would sort of, like, okay, um, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> It's, it's trying to posture and everyone's just like, oh, oh, oh no. <laughs> he didn't really jive with people, but he also didn't really notice or care. He had he had some social problems. That's basically what we're dancing around. He was he was a bit of an awkward guy. For his 14th birthday, Gamil Garby asked that his mother legally change his name to Marc Lepin, and she complied. He told her that he wished to have it changed because he did not want any connection to his father, whom he had not seen or heard from since he was six years old. Monique also suspected that Mark was tired of having an Arab name. He was frequently asked what ethnicity he was, and he was frustrated because people did not believe him when he told them that he was French-Canadian. <laughs> um, uh, doing some literal whitewashing here. In fairness to Mark, which is not a sentence I thought I would say, Quebecois French-Canadians are not especially known for being welcoming of outsiders. In fairness to notorious spree killer Mark Lepin, the Quebecois can be somewhat xenophobic. <laughs> it's not wrong. It's not wrong. That is uh, entirely fair. <laughs> uh, 
people of Middle Eastern origins, people of the Muslim faith are especially they, yes. They tend to face a special xenophobia, and their French Canadians are very protective of their French Canadian identity. So he wanted to have a French Canadian name so that people would stop assuming that he was Arab and just assume that he was French Canadian. So it's it's not an entirely unreasonable request that he have his name changed. In the aftermath of the shooting, though, Monique said that one of the ways that she coped with it was that she has sort of made a divide in her mind between Gamil and Mark. So she considers Gamil to be her son, while she sees Mark as the person that he created on his own, which is honestly not the worst coping strategy in the world. At this point in her son's life, Mark's mother was beginning to become concerned about the lack of positive male role models in his life, so she reached out to the Big Brother's Big Sisters program to arrange a Big Brother for Mark. It's kind of a fun program. I was a big sister for a while. My kid wanted to be a frog. I hope he's following his <laughs> dreams. <laughs> you go, kid. You go. Oh. I was paired with that girl for like a year and a half, and her career ambitions were unwavering. And she was like seven. Like, she was past the age where you want to be a, a toad for a living. <laughs> she's old enough to know that that doesn't come with benefits, but she still yeah, wanted to be a Developmentally a little weird, but I respect it. Huh. Yeah, I kind of understood why they were why they were seeking a big sister for that one. But uh, honestly, I just think they wanted her to understand that when humans get bigger, they remain humans. They just wanted her to see that <laughs> development in action. <laughs> She's, they're like, you know, your tail's not going to suck up into your butt and you're not going to develop legs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this human is still human. Sorry, kiddo. Oh man, I, I worked as a camp counselor for some time, and they gave me all the little boys with ADHD, and I got them all to call me Lord Spud. Yeah, that was a mistake. Giving you power over the vulnerable <laughs> is always a mistake. <laughs> Not because you will abuse it, but because you will become their god. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when I was, when I turned 18, the day I turned 18... Uh, we, I had a birthday party where my, my, my niece was over and she was like, she wanted me to go play Little Big Planet with her. We wanted to play video games together. And I was like, no, man, I, I gotta go talk to the other adults. And she looked at me and she's like, Auntie Jessie, you're not a real adult. And I, you know, she had a point. I guess I, I, I just, point. I went and I played Little Big Planet. You know, she had me defeated. <laughs> <laughs> make an excellent point. Plus the PlayStation controller. <laughs> player one or player two? Which? What's your poison? <laughs> oh boy. Um, but yeah, Mark was paired with an actual response. Well, no, I said that too soon. Mark was paired with a big brother for nearly two years, and involvement in the program was reportedly a very positive experience for Mark. However, his involvement with his big brother abruptly ceased when the big brother was questioned and detained on suspicion of molesting some of the boys he had mentored. Hmm. So really, we can't catch a break. Um, oh boy. Both Mark, yeah, both Mark and the big brother fervently denied that Mark had ever been molested, and as far as I can tell, the big brother was never actually formally charged with anything. But this still obviously put kind of a damper on the whole experience. It ended Mark's involvement in the program and by extension, the presence of any positive male role model in his life. Oh man, let's find you a positive male role model who's definitely not a child diddler. Yeah, so I mean, even even when they're finally like, yes, he's got a positive male role model. He's he, you know things are looking up. We're gonna we're gonna turn this ship around. No, no, we're no, not. no, we're not. No, 
no, we're gonna, it, it's all going to be tainted and weird, which is basically <laughs> everything in his life. Um, everything even is nothing... touched, especially the children. Oh, no, Jessica, you can't make that joke. <laughs> Making jokes about child molestation in no way takes the sting out of a mass shooter episode, Jessica. I admit it. Child molestation is slightly less dark than this. <laughs> oh, boy. That's that's not a lot of places to go. If you had to measure. <laughs> Despite this big setback. Super um, fucked up yardstick. That is a super fucked up yardstick, Jessica. The fact that you have notches on that yardstick for exactly where child molestation by a trusted adult compares to... <laughs> Mass shooting at your college. The the fact that you have those <laughs> measured out are just uh... it's a fine nuance. Oh boy, I'm grinning ear yeah. to ear, and I need you to know that. <laughs> I know, I know. Jessica's like just sitting in the dark on giant meter stick, right where genocide <laughs> goes between <laughs> religious desecration and natural disaster. She just got it all in there. Mm. Blasphemy is a fun one. Oh, God. Uh, (laughs) Quad era demonstrandum. (laughs) Which is Latin for proved my Uh, point. (laughs) But despite this setback, Mark was reportedly a relatively well-adjusted high school student. I mean, which is remarkable. But um, he was helpful at home. He effectively ran the household because his mother was working quite a bit. She still had a very demanding job handling his daily chores and household repairs without having to be reminded. He did have that best friend that he was really close to, and the two of them spent a lot of time shooting pigeons with an air rifle and tinkering with small electronics. Again, the pigeon thing sounds sinister in hindsight, but now, because we know what Mark became, but it would sort of be weirder for a young Quebec cowboy not to go shoot things in the woods. Honestly, yeah. Like, I still have cousins who shoot shit in the woods. Like, it's it's a normal part of a rural childhood at a certain point in history. Yeah, my my sibling shot a porcupine off the deck a couple weeks ago. You know, it's just it's just part of rural Canadian life. <laughs> Otherwise, the dog bites them, and then that's a two hundred dollar vet bill. So what do you want to do? Box of pellets is like six bucks, and you can take those fuckers down with two of them. So you know, it's... <laughs> my parents are really into cost effective measures. Yeah, this is also an era where kids were allowed to play with lawn darts. <laughs> So, oh yeah, which is just it's, a it's, huge weighted dart with a spike in the end. It's it's the 1970s. We're like 30 years off from giving kids morphine and uranium. Like it's <laughs> we've we've still got lead paint and we're just learning to block the stairs off. Like it's it's uh, <laughs> it's a hazardous time to be a child. Yeah, like my mom grew up in this era and she has some fascinating scars. Yeah, my mom has a piece of glass in her leg from like 1974. She's never gotten out. So, you know. Uh, yeah, uh... my mom has bullet shrapnel. <laughs> it's yes. <laughs> <laughs> Kids bounce back. She's like, "Oh yeah, here's here's this weird bumpy spot on my arm where like I I got injured falling off a horse, then they stitched me up and they forgot to take the grass out." <laughs> you know. <laughs> People had more kids back then. You had to thin the herd a little bit. But yeah, uh, yeah. You, you you got you had more tries at it. You had extras. Yeah. Like firstborn less... and or con- cannon fodder. Just think about it. Not me. I was effectively bubble wrapped until high school. 
my father cut my grapes in half till I was 23, so... <laughs> I probably should have been given a helmet. <laughs> you should probably still have one now. <laughs> if we ever monetize this podcast, the first Patreon goal is just je- get Jessica some safety gear. <laughs> a nice soft helmet and maybe some shoulder pads. Yeah, if you pledge $25, we'll give you a shout-out on the podcast, and we will buy Jessica some knee pads. So, you know, <laughs> win-win. It's an investment in my future. <laughs> in the in the idea that you have one. Yes. Mm, I'm gonna <laughs> keep most of my brain on the inside. These things don't research themselves. But, uh, although, you know, casual violence towards pigeons is quite normal for a young Quebecois boy in the 1970s, what's not normal is that Mark also reportedly got really into Adolf Hitler. Ooh, yeah, no. (laughs) (laughs) So that's less normal. A little weird. Um, Like, can't you just look up to Louis Riel like every other boy your age? Yeah, I mean, if if you're grappling with your racial identity and being, you know, uh, half white, half non-white, yeah, Louis Riel's probably a better role model than (laughs) Adolf Hitler. And he also killed someone, so, you know. Yeah, yeah, and declared himself Pope. Okay, that's, yeah. The, the end of Louis Riel's life was rough. We should probably do an episode on it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, the life of Louis Riel is, is divided into, like, the revolutionary years and, like, the untreated schizophrenia years. They're... <laughs> it's fun. It's fun. It's completely He was both a hero um, and not a well man. No. <laughs> But uh, we can kind of see that Mark's early life followed the pattern that we see in a lot of murderers, serial killers, and mass killers. There's a pattern of abuse, neglect, and head injuries in his very early life that is very common to that demographic. And even though Mark got out of that situation fairly early on, which is not always true, a lot of serial killers, um, Henry Lee Lucas, Otis Toole... um, That big guy who killed those co-eds in South California. Oh, Ed Kemper, that's who it is. Yes, mm. Ed Kemper. Um, oh, the filthy Gacy. one who killed. Who was the filthy pig farmer who killed people in Vancouver? Uh, Robert Picton. Picton, yeah. Um, a lot of the people who have this kind of background and end up becoming serial killers or mass murderers, it's sort of like a consistent pattern of constant abuse. So what's really interesting is that it it happens to Mark only in his early life, in that really developmentally important part of his life, and even having like a loving mother working her ass off to get him out of that situation did not turn his life around. And, I mean, we can wax poetic all day about what makes a serial killer and nature versus nurture, but it is interesting to note that these are really common things. Head injuries and abuse. That's (laughs) definitely not all people who come from these kinds of backgrounds grow up to be violent killers. The vast majority will not. No. Uh, I I work in social work. Everybody I work with comes from this kind of background. Most of them are just kind of sad. But, um... Very few of them are violent killers. A few are, but very few. Yeah, basically, if you put, like, a thousand people through this kind of abuse, all of them are gonna end up a lot sad, but some of them are just gonna be, like, ticking time bombs. Just statistically. Yeah, yeah so the majority of people who, who come from this background don't become violent killers, but the majority of violent killers do come from something resembling this background. It's kind of your classic all A's or B's, but not all B's or C's kind of thing. You fucking nerd. Yes. <laughs> I I made it into math. It was it was criminology and it was fun and now it's math. But um just sticking math also, into everything. You've been learning too much French. 
<laughs> uh, God, I hate my boyfriend's language. Love him, though, but... Ugh. <laughs> uh, it's, uh... No, I, I just like to fuck with him because I like, I like to now ask him whether words are masculine or feminine, and I like to specifically pick words that are usually plurals. Plural? Oh, and the yeah. number of... The number of words in his own language, like, he doesn't even know. It's a bullshit language. Why? Nobody knows this stuff. You know what upsets me? Soup is feminine, but vagina is masculine. What? And penis can be masculine or feminine, depending on which word you use. What? Why? Who? (laughs) Vagina is masculine. (laughs) Why? Oh... I should have dated a Chinese guy. Yeah, Holy office shit. is masculine, success is masculine, job is masculine, kitchen, house, and grocery shopping are all feminine. <laughs> Naturally. But Naturally. vagina is masculine. Good. I'm. It's not too late. It's, it's not too late to leave him for a... I was gonna say Mexican. Nope, Spanish is also... Stupid and Re- wrong. Really, you it's, need it's, you need something Asian, just something with a base hundred system. I'm gonna leave him for a Japanese guy. Sorry, honey. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's important to remember that Mark LePain's background helps to explain his actions, but it does not excuse his actions. These are two very different things. Could this tragedy have been averted if Mark hadn't had such a horrifying early life? We don't know. That's the topic of numerous books. If you have a concrete answer to that. It's probably your PhD thesis. We just, we do not know. It probably wouldn't have hurt to have had his head slammed into fewer walls. That's usually how this goes, but we we will never know what exactly could have prevented this tragedy. Mark finished high school at the age of 17 because of the way that the Quebec secondary school system is set up. Weirdly, we have already explained this on the show before. Why a true crime podcast has found it necessary to explain the structure of the Quebecois school system more than once is beyond me. But I, f- I feel quite certain that we've explained this on the podcast before. Oh, Cégep? Yeah, we've definitely talked about it. We definitely talked about Cégep at some point. But Quebec high school runs from grade 7 to 11, and it is compulsory for all of those years. Um, at the end of 11th grade, you graduate from high school in Quebec and you receive your high school diploma. But you can't go to university because entry into a Canadian university requires a grade 12 education or equivalent. And that doesn't actually exist in Quebec. So to bridge the gap between high school and university, Quebec students attend public colleges called Cégep. Uh, It stands for something I can't pronounce. But um, (laughs) they're just it's it's just become a colloquial word now. It's just C-E-G-E-P, Cégep. You can go for uh, two years to get the grades necessary to apply for a four-year degree. So then you start in your second year of the degree, just to make all of this more confusing than it had to be. Or you can go for three years and finish with a terminal vocational diploma. So it it can be the equivalent of a community college. It can be the equivalent of 12th grade. The whole thing is just ridiculous. My mom has a great time explaining her education because she did most of her school in England and then did like two years of high school in New Brunswick and then went to Sejep. So her education makes absolutely no sense to anybody. Yeah, so Sejep is an optional college that you only need to go to if you actually plan to continue your education. It's not a mandatory part of Quebec school. Mark initially did not want to continue his education. 
He had been obsessed with the army and with war for quite some time, and so he attempted to join the Canadian Armed Forces at the age of 17, um, which is legal in Canada with parent permission. However, Mark's application to join the Canadian Armed Forces was rejected. This is actually another common theme that we see in mass killers, an interest in joining the army that doesn't go well or that is brief. Mark initially told his best friend that he was rejected because he had, quote, issues with authority, which is the sort of, like, I would have punched a drill sergeant thing that every tough guy uses to explain why he's not in the army. Yeah, it's definitely not because you're unstable and we come shows up on screenings. Yeah, not, not a chance that that's the problem. Yeah, so, I, I mean, spoiler alert for a crime that took place 30 years ago, Mark left behind a suicide note. And in the suicide note, he said that he was rejected because the army felt he had antisocial tendencies. Which, you think? No. Everyone in your life finds you odd and you're obsessed with Adolf Hitler. I can't imagine why you didn't pass your army screening. Yeah, you're too weird to kill for the state. <laughs> I mean, in fairness, most of what the Canadian army does is, uh, at least in, in 19... I don't, Usually I, sandbag I related. <laughs> I was gonna say, most of what the Canadian army does is, like, especially in Quebec, is just dig people out of ice storms and sandbag rivers. <laughs> if you join the army, you're probably- in the Canadian army, you're probably never gonna kill anybody. <laughs> like, you're gonna hand out aid packages and you're going to fix bridges. <laughs> I was gonna say, maybe that's less true, like, post-2001, but- um, Yeah, I mean, my family have had approximately four interactions with the Canadian military- other than my enlisted family members, and it was when the Canadian military came to dig them out of various ice storms. It's, it's common. You shovel a lot of snow in the Canadian military. The Canadian Armed Forces actually issued an official statement on the matter because the media dug up the fact that Mark had applied and been rejected by them um, in the wake of the massacre. Their only comment on the matter was that Mark had been interviewed, assessed, and determined to be unsuitable, and they refused to release any further information. Or rather, they released the information to the Montreal police, who have refused to release basically anything related to this case. Um, so we will never really know for sure what the disqualifying factor was. Being antisocial is probably as good a guess as any. So after being rejected to the, from the military, Mark began attending Cégep de Saint-Laurent, which is located in Saint-Laurent, which is... It's currently a borough of Montreal, but it was a separate city up until 2002. His mom also worked in the area at a hospital for chronic illness, and shortly afterwards, his mother moved the family to St. Laurent to be closer to her job and to Marc Sejep. This began a seven-year period of Marc's life, the final seven years of Marc's life, that he would later describe in his suicide note as completely joyless. For one thing, the move separated him from his best and only friend, and they lost touch shortly afterwards. And if there is anything that Mark's mental health did not need at that moment, it was probably total social isolation. Yeah, not good for anybody, really, but definitely not good if you're the kind of person the army looks at and goes, eh, probably not. Yeah, so he's already he's already struggling socially, he's got poor self-esteem. Yeah, he's half Arabic and has a complex relationship with Adolf Hitler. It's not... it's not good. The only thing worse than young and angry is young and angry and alone. <laughs> young, angry, and obsessed with Adolf, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty bad. So Mark decided initially to take a two-year Sejep course in pure sciences, which would have allowed him to go on to a bachelor's degree, while also working part-time in the kitchens and janitorial staff of the hospital where his mom worked. None of it went particularly well for him. In his first semester of Sejep, he failed two of his courses, despite being a strong student in high school, for reasons unknown. 
He was also unpopular among his co-workers at the hospital. They described him as nervous, immature, and hyperactive. One of his duties was to take the meals to the patients on wheeled carts, and he apparently whipped the cart around corners and off the elevator so quickly, he received complaints about spilling soup all over the hallways. <laughs> so, he's just a nervous little dude spilling soup all over a hospital. I don't know. Just racing a trolley around the corners in a hospital, sloshing soup like he's on a... Yeah, it's <laughs> like in the Lucille he, Ball show. Like, what is this? Yeah, he received numerous complaints uh, and numerous reprimandations at his job for being careless. Because yeah, he's just souping up the hallways. <laughs> um, That's not acceptable in most workplaces, but especially not a hospital. We're just getting yeah. broth all over the patients. <laughs> mm, that's what a hospital needs. Just based in the slippery. newborns. <laughs> <laughs> well, his was a hospital for chronic illness, so this is actually older, typically older oh, patients. Well. But yes, that's basting the, last thing the that... elderly. Then yes, that's what an elderly woman needs. Just slipping hazards. Tenderize them. Yeah, he reportedly developed a crush on one of his female coworkers at the hospital, but he didn't really know what to do with that. And so he never really acted on it. He was able to pull his grades up in his second semester of CEGEP, and at the end of the year he transferred out of the Pure Sciences course and into a three-year electrical engineering course. This was a terminal vocational program where he would have a certification at the end of the three years and then could go directly into the workforce. The employment prospects of graduates from this course were very good, to the point that many of them were able to secure jobs before they'd actually finished their final semester. Um, and professors often had to convince them to actually see it through to the end because they were doing so well. And Mark initially did quite well in this program and his professors, his professors, to be honest, barely remembered him. When when they were asked, I read through a bunch of news articles where professors were asked to comment on him and a lot of them had a difficult time remembering who he even was, even though he was reportedly the fourth in his class. So smart, but quiet. <laughs> yeah, they remembered him as being quiet and gifted, but forgettable. He reportedly kept to himself, did not communicate much, and had a habit of just quietly following along during lessons with a calculator to double-check the professor's calculations on the board. He also had a female lab partner for some of his courses, who was reportedly a very weak student. But Mark apparently got along with her quite well. He was apparently quite kind to her, and often helped her or did her part of the work without complaining. But in the fall of 1985, out of nowhere, Mark begins to spiral. He had been attaining good grades in his electrical engineering program up until that point, but out of nowhere, his fall 1985 grades dropped severely. And the following semester, the winter of 1986, what was supposed to be the final semester of his program, he stops attending classes altogether in February. After missing just six days of lessons, he withdraws from the program entirely and leaves without getting his diploma. He then moves out of the family home and into his own apartment, though he continues to work at the hospital where his mother is a director. That is the first time he applies to the École Polytechnique de Montréal. This is one of Canada's largest and best engineering schools, and is certainly one of the best francophone universities in Canada. Yeah, I've met some people from the school before. Ooh. I, uh, I once went to... Oh, actually, this was because I went to a um, debate tournament alone uh, in, Montre uh, in Montreal. My first debate partner, uh, your former boyfriend, flunked out at me at the last minute. Uh, didn't bother to tell me because he was too embarrassed. Uh, then I asked you, and you were just like, shit, I also can't do it. And then I just went alone and then switched to the French one. <laughs> oh, yeah, I remember that. And I just hung out with a bunch of people from Montreal Polytechnic for, like, the École Polytechnique for, like, t 
lawsuit an entire weekend while they were just confusedly had an Albertan judge. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, this was the first time I'd ever seen debate in my second language. And they were so impressed with, like, their exotic prairie judge that they broke me to finals as a judge. <laughs> and, I don't, and I'd only known French for about three years at this point. <laughs> you were the diversity hire? <laughs> yeah, well, I absolutely was. I, 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 I don't think I'd ever been sweatier. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, I am barely fluent. I am just drooling sweat <laughs> like you just pay attention i know they're talking like in your foreign language about complex political issues but if you don't listen to every word they say they're gonna think you're stupid <laughs> also not to worry i i went from dating an incredibly <laughs> flaky dude who dropped out of debate tournaments with like three days to spare to dating a man so reliable he considers owning more than five shirts to be frivolous <laughs> You've moved up in the world, Janelle. Have I? Does he measure his cereal? Oh, <laughs> uh, like he eats cereal. Does he use a measuring cup to decide how much how much milk to have in the morning? Listen, he eats an exact portion of lentils every day. <laughs> I knew he was a food measurer. <laughs> He's calculated the exact protein intake he needs in order to obtain maximum jogging results, and he's found the most cost-effective way to do that. I'm basically dating beads, a French beads, calculator. Beads. <laughs> Although he does have what is apparently a habit common to people from France, which is if you give him a pastry and there is coffee within 20 feet of him, he will just dunk the entire pastry in his coffee. It's almost magnetic. Anything even remotely sweet just goes straight into his coffee. <laughs> Didn't you give him a cinnamon bun the other day? I gave him a cinnamon bun. The whole fucking thing went into his coffee. Cream cheese <laughs> frosting and all. <laughs> I can't imagine how sticky that would be. <laughs> Brownie into the coffee with ice cream <laughs> still on top of it. <laughs> I gave him uh, a, if you gave him a Twinkie, it'd be going in. No, literally, I gave him a box, uh, I gave him a bag of those, like, ch expensive chocolate lint balls, and he just dropped one into his coffee like he was steeping a tea bag. I don't understand <laughs> this culture. <laughs> Dessert goes in. <laughs> when he's done having coffee and breakfast, the bottom of his cup looks like what you dredge out of a grease trap. It's disgusting. <laughs> But uh, to get back to mass murder, um, Mark received a conditional acceptance to the Polytechnique, but is told that in order to receive a complete acceptance, he has to do two prerequisite courses, including one course in solution chemistry. But he does not do this. The following year, 1987, Mark is fired from his job at the hospital for aggressive and disrespectful behavior toward his colleagues and superiors. His history of sloppy work, getting soup all over the fucking place, is also a factor in his firing. Fired for super-lidded crimes. I think it was mostly the unwarranted aggression towards his colleagues, but the soup didn't help. Yeah, like, you can either spill soup all over the floor, or be a bit of an asshole, you cannot do both. 
the soup, <laughs> the more of a dick you are, the more of the soup becomes a problem. <laughs> right? It's like, okay, Timmy, like, you're getting fired because you helicoptered your dick in front of the entire Best Buy. But the fact that you were late consistently doesn't help your case. <laughs> it's bad enough you goatseed half the customer base. But... The fact that you licked all the DVDs, not helping you. <laughs> Man, I miss Future Shop. Nobody ever got goatseed at a Future Shop. <laughs> <laughs> this is the this is the real flaw of corporate consolidation and the loss of diversity. This is also like the most Canadian references we've ever had in an episode. <laughs> Competition is really what kept people from seeing the inside of other men's anuses. <laughs> But uh, to say that Mark did not handle the loss of his job very well is an understatement. He reportedly became extremely unpredictable, flying into rages at the slightest provocation. His friend said that he began making threats, saying that he was planning to get revenge by shooting up the hospital and then killing himself. Um, he obviously didn't actually do that, but he did Fun. do pretty much that just two years later. Not, 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 not firm on the details just yet. It's a work in progress. Although... How you get fired from a from a hospital where your mother is the director? Well, she's the director of nursing. She's the director. Of she's the, the director of nursing. So, like, your mother is relatively high, well positioned here. Like, just yeah. How much of an asshole do you have to be before even that can't save you? Uh, probably in a French hospital. Yeah, where like, I assume is... like medicine is just like they smack you with a baguette. Right, it's just like this. These are not. This is the seventies. We do not have high standards for medical <laughs> care. Like <laughs> Quebec lagged behind most of the other provinces in terms of infant mortality and basic sanitation for a very long time. Never mind its approach to nepotism and corruption. The last time my brother was in Quebec, he just got punched in the face for no reason by a dude who was nearly a full foot shorter than him. So. If- <laughs> Didn't they also punch his girlfriend? They did. They also punched his girlfriend's mom. So the fact that, like, <laughs> if you're aggressive by Quebec standard, my brother is six foot four and like two hundred and fifty pounds. I don't know why anybody would just just come up and deck him, launch a haymaker at him in the middle of a bar. But apparently that's the route they went. Yeah, they also punched his ninety pound girlfriend at the time, and uh, yeah, her her elderly mother. But, um, yeah, so if you're aggressive by Quebec standards, I assume that you just, you have a medieval mace that you flail around? I don't even know what you have to do. Like, this is this is a province in a time when punching strangers is almost a personality. That's what our, our prime minister in the 90s was known for. He bragged about just being an aggressive little shit. Exactly. So I, I guess he's just burst into rooms like the Kool-Aid man. Slapping a nurse and then leaving. I don't know. Just pouring um... hot soup in people's faces. (laughs) Mark returned to his SEJAP program in the fall of 1987, taking the three missing courses required to complete his diploma and obtaining high marks in all of them. He did not, however, take the solution chemistry course that was required for admittance into École Polytechnique. After completing the SEJAP course, he took a government student loan and began taking computer courses at a private college in downtown Montreal moving into an apartment in the downtown area with an old high school buddy. In the winter of 1989, he began taking a night class in solution chemistry at a local CEJEP in preparation for another application to École Polytechnique. 
Although his academic and professional career was finally starting to look up, his personal life was not going well. Mark LePain often spoke to friends and acquaintances about how lonely he was and how much he desired a girlfriend, but he was apparently very awkward around women. He tended to become aggressive and bossy with women in a strange attempt to show off for them, and he often made a, part, a point of trying to demonstrate how smart he was. So you can imagine how this went over. He also apparently had a habit of going off to sulk if somebody corrected him or disagreed with him, especially women. Oh, so he would have been just fucking insufferable. Yeah, so if a woman rebuffed him or didn't agree with him, he apparently would get quite upset, quite angry, or he would just go off to sulk, go sit in his room. So he he really, he didn't... So he he was a socially inept, neck-bearded personification of mansplaining. Yeah, so at this point, yeah, he's 23 years old, he's never had a relationship, he's desperate to have one, but he just doesn't know how, and he's just kind of flailing at women, socially. Just just no idea how to bridge what he wants with, like, the fact that women are not vending machines where you put nice in and a relationship pops out. He's he's really not understanding how this works. He was He's basically just trying to be smart at people and is not coping very well with the fact that that doesn't work. Yeah, maybe if I just impress you hard enough, eventually you will give me sex and love? Maybe? Mark has also never had a healthy or functional relationship model for him in his life. His early childhood was spent with a father who believed that marriage was just punching your wife into submission. And reportedly, after the divorce, his mother went through a bit of a wild period where she was sort of trying to get this out of her system, and she had a lot of short-term relationships. And in the aftermath, she sort of questioned whether having a lot of men in and out of her children's lives and having a lot of short-term romantic relationships may have messed Mark up a bit. Although, again, to be clear, many, many children grow up with mothers that don't have a long-term partner, with mothers who have numerous short-term partners. The vast majority of them do not shoot up a university and kill 14 women. So, Uh, I mean, if they did... There wouldn't be a university standing. Yeah, so so Mark is essentially in a situation where he, he desperately wants a relationship, but he's just, he's never really been shown how to do that in a healthy way, and he has no idea how to do that. And instead of figuring it out, he decides to just be angry and pissy and hateful. So in 1989, the final year of his life, was when he starts to become vocal about his hatred for feminists. Mark reportedly started to spend a lot of time hanging around with a group of young men who were all fans of the military. You know, the insufferable type. Uh, Military groupies are one of those cases of, like, the fandom is so much worse than the actual show. (laughs) Yeah, my high school had a group of them. They wore fatigues and hung out in the stairwell and had exactly zero friends. Everything was related to the army. They, I, I, yeah, I hung out with some of them. It was, it was, I learned many, many frightening things about World War II. (laughs) And you've yet to escape. (laughs) No, no, I am dating a, uh, a half Jew from France. So nope, World (laughs) War II is, World War II is much less of a topic now. (laughs) Bit of a sore spot, really. So, uh, <laughs> so he's he's in that kind of like socially inept group of frustrated young men in their mid twenties who sort of aren't really doing much with their lives. They're big fans of the military, but none of them are like able to get into the army. They used to walk around Montreal in army fatigues, renting war movies and visiting gun shops. 
Mark would often give sermons and rant about his hatred for career women, especially women in male-dominated professions. Because back in the day, before we had this lazy generation in their internet, you had to meet up in person in basements to talk about how much you hate women. <laughs> yeah, he actually went outside to do it, which is... Ugh, ugh, progress, I guess. Um, <laughs> At least he was getting exercise with fresh air. <laughs> I think I just barfed. Yeah. <laughs> but, um... Mark blamed women for his inability to get into the university program that he wanted, despite the fact that he didn't get into the university program he wanted because he didn't take a course he was told to take. But rather than taking even an ounce of responsibility for his own life, he decided to, to harp on this belief that women had taken his spot. Clearly, that women the women were, are to blame. <laughs> yes, women are to blame. That it's, it's those feminists. And he believed that women were going to take over the workplace and that they were going to take all the spots from men and they were going to force men out. And he believed that women should stay out of the workplace and stay home raising babies, which is which is a strange perspective from a man who was raised by a hardworking single mother who had to become a hospital administrator with a master's degree to provide for her family because her husband abandoned his responsibilities. He was just so unwilling to take responsibility for his own life. His his own mother commented on this repeatedly, that, you know, he, they had a great relationship. They had a very strong relationship. He helped around the house. He, he was, um, he was an easy kid. He took on a lot of the domestic chores because she had to work. Like, there was never any friction in this non-traditional gender role structure they had going on. And so the fact that he came came out swinging at feminists all of a sudden that they were taking men's jobs and they needed to stay out of the workplace. It was as surprising to her as anybody. So in 1989, Marc applies again for the third time to the École Polytechnique de Montréal, but was once again rejected due to the missing prerequisite course, which again, he knew that he had to take. He, he chose to blame this on feminists, but it was, it was again because he was missing this course. So instead of doing what he was supposed to do, he instead abandoned his computer courses, dropping out in March of 1989, in much the same way he had suddenly abandoned his three-year SEJEP program. He did, though, complete the solution chemistry course that he was taking, obtaining a score of 100% on his final exam. What? Yeah, like, he was a gifted student. He, this was the thing. He struggled with everything in his life. When he died, he was broke and unemployed. He abandoned most of the academic programs that he pursued, but... When he put even the slightest ounce of effort into his own life, he was quite a gifted student. Okay. Yeah, just a complete waste of a human. You had so much going for you. He, he, he won math competitions, he was quite gifted with computers, and it, this is 1989, computers are about to explode, but instead of, <laughs> yeah, being useful- If he just- Held on. Like, he could have been a millionaire at this point. Yeah, if he if he took even the slightest responsibility for the things that were wrong in his life, and made even the slightest effort to rectify them, we wouldn't be having this conversation. But he went a different route. So, Mark met again with a university admissions counselor in April of 1989, and during the meeting, he ranted about how women and feminists had made it impossible for men to succeed in the job market. Which, if you want to get into a university, is probably not the way to go. Ooh, not the best interview tactic. No, no. That's, if you uh, go into a job and you just start screaming about Muslims, they will think twice. <laughs> yeah. They don't care what's on your resume. Oh boy. <laughs> it's, it's, 
it's the reddest of flags. At this point, he is eight months away from murdering 14 women. But that is where we will end off the background of Mark LePay, the man who would go on to be Canada's deadliest spree killer. Yeah, on the one hand, he did come from a life of early adversity, abuse, instability, and potentially significant brain damage. But on the other hand, he had a mom who loved him very much and worked her goddamn ass off to get him out of that environment and did provide him with stability and safety from a relatively he, young age. He also had plenty of opportunities and just decided to torpedo his own life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, instead of, like, overcoming this and sort of working through his issues, he decides to just be human diarrhea. There are a lot of people who face much worse adversity with a lot less support, and they don't end up murdering more than a dozen people because they can't have what they want. You know, I, we try to avoid passing too much judgment on this show, but Mark ultimately chose to be a loser. He chose to let his talent go to waste, he chose to blame other people for his own failures, and he chose to end 15 lives rather than fixing the things that were wrong in his life. So, uh, I think we can safely end off part one by saying, fuck Mark LePin. Yeah. Fuck him in the eye. <laughs> oh, that's graphic. Wow. Right in the socket. <laughs> well, awesome. Great. But yeah, uh, that has been part one. I've been Jessica. And I have been Janelle. And we are Fat, fat French, French, and, and Fabulous. fabulous.